Welcome to Think Agility, the new podcast series from Agilisys. I'm your host today, Richard Owen, the CEO of Agilisys. You might know us from our work around the UK in developing road safety strategies, research and data platforms. But over the last few years, we've also run a wide variety of workshops, conferences, dozens of webinars, and occasionally people have said to us, have you thought about creating a podcast? So here we are. Think Agility aims to bring together intelligence, insight and innovation relating to the highway sector. And of course, there will be a focus on safety, but it also relates to connected themes such as sustainable and active mobility, traffic technology, air quality, public health. So we'll be bringing together thought, leadership and the latest research, and we're hoping to blend them in with vibrant discussion, all with the hope of helping colleagues get across issues, think more deeply and help us all move forward. So... In our fourth episode, we want to have a discussion about a project which last December garnered a Prince Michael International Road Safety Award for its innovation and achievement. This project involved us in Agilisys working with the International Road Assessment Programme, that's IRAP, and the Global Road Safety Facility on novel ways of collecting data. I'm joined today by our chief data scientist, Craig Smith, who led the technical elements of this project. And we're going to have a discussion about how it all started, what we achieved, and what the future is for this kind of technology. So if there's anything that you hear in this episode that sparks your interest and you want to dig a little deeper, we'll put some links into the show notes. And of course, you're probably going to want to go through another episode or two before you run along and rate us on your podcast platform. But, you know, to make sure that you do get the next episode, please do subscribe. So, before we talk about the project specifically, Craig, one of the main objectives was to define traffic and speeds in Africa. Um, what are the traditional ways of getting hold of this data in the UK? We're really lucky in the UK. Um, the Department of Transport publish annual traffic data on quite a lot of the road network, um, plus a lot of local authorities commission their own traffic counts, and often that includes speed surveys as well. Um, but on top of that, there's there's a growing fleet of connected vehicles that are always sort of pinging um, probe data, which you can collect up and use to measure speed profiles, long roads, or um, calculate traffic volumes. Um, so yeah, there's 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 quite a lot of data in the UK. Wow, I mean, even some of that sounds quite advanced um, using that in the UK. Um, you know, is that available in low middle income countries, that kind of data? Or what about even some of the more traditional sources that you mentioned there? Yeah, so the, the fleet of um, connected vehicles is much smaller, as you'd expect, in low middle income countries. So, um, yeah, it's not quite large enough to, to get good quality speed and traffic data from at the moment. Um, there's a lot more probe data coming from mobile phones. But as we all know, um, the the data is really difficult to procure, especially from from mobile phone providers. And the the tracking tends to be um, a lot less accurate in terms of um, the the spatial location data than than the connected vehicles. Um, Yeah, the the more traditional sort of traffic surveys are also a lot harder to get a hold of. there aren't as many suppliers of traffic sensors, which means the, the costs are, are driven up. So there aren't as many traffic surveys being carried out in these countries as well. Yeah, and I guess, you know, we've had a history of investing in those kinds of surveys in the UK um, and publishing those on, you know, the Department for Transport website, for example. But I think even in a lot of European countries, you don't see that kind of level of investment that we've no. got. So, yeah, I think looking at these novel data sources is is applicable in, in loads of different places. Um, but why is it so critical to road safety globally? Why do we need this data? Um, so 
back in 2017, uh, the UN General Assembly um, formulated 12 voluntary road safety targets. Of course, to monitor these targets, all of these countries need data. Um, so, so two of the most relevant to the work we've been doing are target four. So to have 75% of travel happening on roads that are engineered to a sufficiently safe standard. Um, and target six, to have the the proportion of vehicles exceeding the speed limit um, reduced by half, both of these by 2030. Um, but for that, you need to know you need to know where travel's happening, traffic flows, um, but you also need to know how fast vehicles are traveling and, and how many vehicles are speeding, um, as well as understanding engineering features as well, if you want to know um, the, the quality of road safety engineering. Um, so these things, are very doable in the UK. We've got the, the telematics fleet data to give us speed profiles for pretty much every road in the country. Um, but in LMICs, the, the data just isn't there. Okay, so yeah, let's talk a little bit more about the project itself then. So we talked about low middle income countries. Um, so this project looked at two countries in East Africa, uh, which were Ethiopia and Kenya. Yep. Um, but within those countries, how did you select which roads to look at? So we really wanted to look as much of the network as we could afford to um, within the, the sort of the confines of the project. So we, we looked at the entire major road network um, as defined by OpenStreetMap, which was the, the most um, up-to-date network we could get. Um, but we also tried to include any minor roads that we thought might still be carrying a, a considerable amount of traffic. So part of that was looking at um, origins and destinations. So making sure that we weren't sort of isolating off towns and villages and getting all of the, the major connections. Okay, so when you've identified the roads that you're going to be looking at, um, you needed to have an idea about where you were going to get data to match against those roads. You know, so you've already talked about what sources weren't available. So what was your big idea to use a different type of data to get this information? Yeah, so the, the focus was going to always be on data that's globally available and sort of uniform coverage across the globe. Um, and one of the obvious sources there is Earth observation imagery. It's it's everywhere. It's relatively high quality um, and it's it's uniform. Um, but we also wanted to supplement that with with other data sets. So we also looked at things like OpenStreetMap, which similarly has global coverage and um, some crowdsourced um, in-vehicle imagery, things from like Mapillary. So when you say Earth observation, you're talking about satellite images there, aren't you? Yeah, yeah. So um, specifically, we were looking at uh, Worldview 2, which, um, yeah, the, the imagery is, so you get visual imagery of um, the whole globe, pretty much, alongside some multispectral imagery that's across eight different um, wavelengths of light. Um, and that was provided by our friends at Maxar. So um, they have a, a product called Analysis Ready Data, um, which allows us to procure data much more easily from them. And they've been, yeah, really helpful um, helping us procure that. Ah, so I guess this means that it's a lot more freely available than perhaps people originally thought. Yeah, so Maxar have put a lot of effort into pre-processing imagery. Um, so all we had to do was decide where we wanted it um, and, and procure it through their API. And the, the imagery was ready for us to use within a couple of days. Um, so, yeah, you know, is it really expensive? I mean, are we talking millions of pounds, tens of hundreds of thousands of pounds? So if you're procuring 
um, satellite imagery through the sort of traditional means, buying sort of large areas. It, it tends to be quite expensive um, because you're you're buying a lot of area that you're not going to be using. Um, if you're only really interested in road networks, then you're not going to be wanting to look at the fields that that's alongside roads. Um, so one of the main selling points of of working with Maxar was that they they allowed us to set really very specific areas for for procuring the imagery. So we were only really buying the the carriageway plus a little bit either side, which cuts down costs massively. So I mean it is an ambitious undertaking. You know we talked about the idea of collecting this data, and we'll get onto the technicalities of exactly how you did that later on. Um, you know. Were there any examples of people doing this kind of work before? Was it a shot in the dark? What made you think it was going to be possible? Yeah, so there's there's a, a large geospatial community that have, have been detecting things from either Earth observation imagery or sort of lower level aerial imagery from drones for quite a while now. Um, yeah, so the, the the techniques were all there. They'd just not been applied to this sort of problem. Um, but there were, there were still some open problems in this project. So detecting vehicles, detecting different um, road attributes had either been done or, or people had, had done similar things in the past. There were also some things that we didn't know how we were going to do them. So detecting vehicle speeds, for example, was one of the more innovative things. So, you know, they're big places, Kenya and Ethiopia, aren't they? You know, looking at two million square kilometres or something like that. Um, you talked a little bit about um, how you selected individual roads to look at. You know, what other sorts of issues did it pose working with such huge areas? I mean, just, just from a technical standpoint, um, satellite imagery covering the whole of those two countries, uh, a resolution of 50 centimetres per pixel is just massive amounts of data um, so a huge amount of effort was put into designing sort of processing pipelines that could be as efficient as possible um, so detecting things from aerial or earth observation imagery for a small number of images is is a big enough task but it's doable um, but it was scaling up to the entire country where it really got interesting so yeah i think i'm going to persuade you to talk a little bit more on some of the technical aspects at least for a few minutes before we get back to some of the the wider advantages of this but so breaking down that task then i mean how do you start what were the first things that you discovered and how did that shape the rest of the project yeah so our initial focus was on working out where um, traffic flows were and vehicle speeds um, so we started off by detecting vehicles from Earth observation imagery. Um, so we used a, a transfer learning process. So we, we took a, a model that was originally designed to detect cancer cells from, from scans. Um, and someone else had, had used that and adopted it to detect buildings from satellite imagery. And so we used that again, retrained it to detect vehicles from above. Um, so we started all of this in Kent. Um, so we had a, a section of road in, well, a few sections of road in Kent in the UK that we labelled and built a really powerful um, detection model. And we, we had quite a lot of success from that. Um, and mainly we did that because there's a lot of ground truth data in Kent. As I said, we've got a lot of different sources of traffic data that we could then um, validate against and make sure that what we were working on was actually working and, and that we were getting good results. Um, but then we moved over to Kenya and Ethiopia and started labeling images there um, where road conditions are, are completely different, as you'd expect. Um, so so the, the breadth of variation is huge in, in what roads look like from above. Um, so we had to do a considerable amount of, of labeling um, vehicles on, on a huge 
variety of roads um, just to diversify the model as much as we could. Because as I said earlier, we, we wanted global applicability on this. We wanted to make sure that the model was accurate everywhere, not just on, on certain classes of road. Wow. So you've used a model that was good at identifying cancer cells and then adapted that so that it's good at detecting cars from space. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. So um, it wasn't just detecting the locations of cars. It was it was giving us sort of the exact footprint of the cars in the imagery. Um, so from that, you could then get the size of the vehicle, for example, or the bearing that it was traveling in. Um, yeah, it's, it's really interesting stuff. Yeah, it's absolutely amazing um, that, that we can do this kind of stuff. But I mean, just being able to detect those those cars from space, and I saw some of the outputs. I mean, it kind of makes sense as a layperson who isn't a data scientist that look at these kinds of things. But the thing that you did next was even more mind boggling. So I hear that you put a, spe a speed camera in space. What's that all about? How did that work? Yeah. Um, so. We, we, we had the ambition of getting speed data and we didn't know how we were going to do this, but we noticed that um, essentially um, Worldview 2 takes both visual imagery and multispectral imagery, which means it takes um, imagery in eight different wavelengths of light, um, but it does this across a fraction of a second. So, so these different captures aren't all instantaneous. It takes around a third of a second for this to happen. Um, and that means that if a moving vehicle is in the image, um, it'll be in a slightly different position when it's captured by each of these different bands of light, which means we, we found a way to observe the blur in the, in the multispectral imagery caused by moving vehicles. Um, and if you can see blur of, of a moving vehicle, you can then measure how far it's moved over a fraction of a second. And if you know how far it's moved and how long it's taken to move, you can, you can determine the speed of each vehicle that's captured in the image. I Craig, that almost sounds too good to be true, using blur to to measure object speed and stuff like that. I mean, surely there had to be some limitations in this. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Um, so so we've got to report out and we're as transparent as possible about this. There are definitely limitations to this. So um, if you've got slow moving traffic, um, really dense traffic, um, it becomes really difficult to untangle the different movements that you're, you're detecting. Um, and sometimes at, at really low speeds, you're not detecting any movement at all. Um, so we can't really measure speeds in either dense traffic or if anything's traveling below 20 kilometers an hour, which is about 12 miles an hour. Um, but on the, the more free flowing interurban roads, we, we got really um, quite accurate speed profiles when we compared against things like in-vehicle telematics data. Oh, right. So you compared against telematics data, obviously, in the UK, you mentioned that in Kent as well. Um, I don't know if you managed to compare against anything um, in either of the target countries. Were there any other data sets that you could access there to look against? Yeah. So um, IRAP had done some um, assessments of the roads in Ethiopia. Um, so there were some speed samples from that. Um, so we compared against those. And in fact, IRAP did an independent ver verification of, of all of our results. And they found that actually, yeah, uh, what we were getting was was quite accurate compared to, to what they'd measured on the ground. So you mentioned the UN road safety target number four earlier, which challenges countries to secure 75% of travel on existing roads that meet technical standards for all road users um, that take into account road safety. I mean, 
uh, it sounds like you've got a lot of the data that could identify those. I mean, is there extra work still required to be able to assess whether countries have met that target? Yeah, so so if you know vehicle speeds and you know how many vehicles there are, you get a really good um, measure of traffic flow across the whole road network, which means we, we already understand where 75% of travel is happening in Kenya and Ethiopia. And this technology can then be used to, to understand where 75% of travels travel happens globally. Um, but what we still need to know is the engineering standards of roads. We need to know, um, you know, are, are they safely engineered, which requires assessment. Um, so this is where AI RAP really stuff comes into play. Yeah, I mean, obviously, um, IRAP were one of the key partners in this project um, and helped uh, us certainly with with this second phase in terms of attribute detection. So, you know, trying to figure out um, what um, is happening on the roads themselves, how you can describe um, features on the road network, much as you would do in a standard IRAP assessment. Now, you know, a standard IRAP assessment, I'm sure many of the um, listeners here will understand uh, that that normally involves having a video drive through of a road and you'd have somebody manually coding up based on observations on what they see. But there is a movement towards automating some of this using advanced intelligence, using uh, AI wrap. Um, so, you know, how close did this project get to um, identifying, you know, some AI wrap attributes? Yeah, so we, we had quite a lot of success with some um attributes so for example detecting zebra crossings from from earth observation imagery um was yeah very successful um yeah we think there's a huge amount of potential for the eo imagery in in gaining ai rep attributes um but, but some features are going to still be a challenge so um we looked at trying to detect the extent of roads you know the, the exact boundaries of them um which should let us measure things like road width or try and understand road surface quality or the quality of delineation, um, number of lanes, things like that. Um, but in the more informal road layouts in parts of Kenya and Ethiopia, where you've not got the nicely sealed tarmac, um, detecting exactly where the road ends is, is difficult enough for a person, let alone a machine. Um, we also tried to look at things like um, grade separation. So, so we've got bridges and overpasses, but also where you've got grade separated junctions um, using things like shadow models. Um, but again, it's going to require a bit more development on our end because it depends quite heavily on the off nadir angle that imagery is taken at where the shadows are going to show. Um, but yeah, we think we think there's a lot of, of promise here in, in using the EO data to to get more AI wrap attributes. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's clearly, you know, a rough estimation of some of these kinds of attributes and not the kind of standards and levels of description that we'd expect to see on roads in the UK. But, you know, understanding all of this from nearly 500 miles above the Earth's surface is pretty cool. Um, you know, uh, how much can you learn and what could you do to enrich the uh, satellite data further? So yeah, as I mentioned, um, having a road mask, understanding exactly where the, the road ends would be incredibly useful. Um, so for example, when we're detecting vehicles and matching them to carriageways, we're doing this just using road center lines and the, the bearings of vehicles. But if you knew exactly where the road ended, you'd be able to discriminate between vehicles that are actually driving on the carriageway and those that are sort of parked alongside. Um, 
but yeah, our, our partners at Max are also interested in this. So um, they've been working on a model that that may be able to help us in future. Um, so that's that's um, enrichment that may be may be coming in the near future. Um, another big thing was our vehicle detection only really detects large vehicles. So um, our resolution is only about 50 centimeters per pixel, which is perfectly fine for picking up cars and, and large trucks. But if you're looking at smaller vehicles, such as motorcycles or pedal cycles or, or even pedestrians, you're, you're getting way too small for the granularity of our imagery. Um, but again, with the, with the help of our friends at Maxar, we've been looking at some really high definition imagery, um, much smaller pixels. Um, which allows us to, I mean, we've already got a model going that can detect motorcyclists um, and, and we're hoping that we can develop that further. Yeah, I can see why, you know, detecting motorcyclists from space would be really useful. In lots of, you know, South Asian countries where you see, you know, very high percentages of road users on motorcycles. I mean, I'm disappointed that we can't even pick out pedestrians from space because, you know, any James Bond or other spy movie you see, you know, you can, you know, detect almost anything from the satellites they got from there. I feel like, you know, we've been misled in all of these action movies. Oh, well. Um, but it sounds like um, EO data has got some really good applications, but you need to rely on a really good road network, you know, good quality GIS maps, as you know, I would say, wouldn't I? So the open street map data seemed really critical to this project too. Um, was there anything else you managed to learn from just using that kind of data? Yeah, so um, OpenStreetMap has a really great amount of useful data coded against it. So people will either manually code it or it'll come from sort of other detection techniques. Um, yeah, there's a really great community crowdsourcing this data. But even just the geometry alone can be useful. So we use that in this project um, to develop algorithms that can measure rolling curvature as you go along the road. So you can detect where there are sharp bends and then match that against the speed data to see um, where there may be risk posed to road users. Um, we also matched carriageways to each other so that we could determine whether roads have um, any median segregation, um, at least where it's been digitized in OpenStreetMap. And um, we also managed to detect and classify junctions using this. So using sort of the road network and the angle of approach of, of different roads, we could then um, boil down what, what junctions had how many legs and whether they were either T-junctions or slip roads and things like that. Wow, that's amazing. It just goes to show the power of maps. So, um, you know, are there any other GIS type of data sets you might manage to use that would describe the environment around the roads, perhaps? Yeah, so one that we made great use of was um, the European Space Agency's world cover. So um, essentially it classifies the entire globe at a 10 meter resolution. Um, into 11 different land use types. Um, but we took that and we enriched it even further by burning in data from OpenStreetMap to get things like residential areas, um, industrial sites and schools, which, which aren't available in the, the European Space Agency data. Um, and we used that to, to get a classification that was in line with IRAP's um, land use categories. And, and further than that, we, we actually got um, categorizations of, of land use for either side of the carriageway so that we could code these separately um, because that's really important for distinguishing between uh, for example if you've got residential areas on both sides of the road you're going to get a, a higher likelihood of pedestrians trying to cross that road um, compared to areas where you might have just residential on one side but agricultural on the other so you, you've got a much less um, 
likelihood of, of pedestrian activity. Wow, that that's all just amazing. I mean, I, I wonder if some of our listeners um, who've listened to previous podcasts wouldn't quite have expected this level of technical um, uh, exploration in terms of uh, what we've been looking at here. We seem to have turned into satellite and um, mapping experts all of a sudden instead of people who specialise in road safety. But um, Hopefully um, people have found that interesting and, and maybe people that wouldn't normally tune into um, our series um, will be able to find that of interest to them. So, I mean, just just bringing some of this back because you know it's great that you can detect all of these attributes um but you know you'd need you need a lot more of those for a full irap assessment of course um and a lot of those will require um you know on the ground information which you just can't get from a, a satellite of course um but some of those attributes and other ones as well can be used together to help describe specific safety performance indicators can't they yeah, that's right. And it's, it's definitely something that we, we worked on in this project. For example, uh, using speed data, you could look at the percentage of vehicles that are traveling at or below the posted speed limit. Um, or you could look at the percentage of travel that's happening on roads that have um, really high speeds, so speeds in excess of 45 miles an hour, but don't have median segregation. Um, or from a, from a vulnerable road user perspective, you can look at the percentage of travel that happens on roads um, where you've got vulnerable road users likely to be present, but vehicle speeds are, are below 20 miles an hour or or there are facilities to protect these vulnerable road users. Wow, yeah. I mean, I can see how those SPIs align with a, a lot of the work that's been happening um, in Europe and in the UK recently. Um, and it'd be great if we're all working off the, the same safe system um, performance indicators so that we can really get a good idea of the level of road danger on different road networks in different countries. Um, uh, that, of course, assumes that they're all scalable. So you know, how scalable are they? Could you Can you do this at a global level? Yeah, so so the first example I gave on on speed compliance, that's pretty much available globally. It's you know our our speed detection model works in any setting. So so you could get a, a global map of um, speed compliance and and determine globally um, all of these safety performance indicators. Um, if you're looking at some of the other SPIs I mentioned, so um, whether or not there's median segregation needs something like open street map so that you can determine whether there is um, segregation there um, and that's only if it's been digitized so you also need sort of higher quality open street map um, which is i mean mostly global but it, it varies from location to location um, the last one i mentioned about vulnerable road users though it it's it's where it starts to become really difficult so you can you could use our land use classification for example to have a proxy of where you're likely to see pedestrians so you can yeah you can see where where pedestrians are likely to be and where they're likely to want to cross the road um, but if you're wanting to detect actual pedestrians then you'll probably need something like mapillary street level um, imagery so that'll be dash cam footage that's crowdsourced and uploaded and then some sort of vehicle, uh, pedestrian detection model which is another thing that we worked on in this project um, but again, you you need the coverage of the the imagery, and that's that's, I mean, it's available in most countries, but it's certainly not across the whole road network, and it's not not available globally. Um, and then there's the the existence of segregated facilities for pedestrians, which becomes really difficult because either that needs detecting from um, 
street level imagery or it needs to be manually coded for example in OpenStreetMap. so so it depends on the spi how how globally applicable it is but in most cases you can measure something on quite a large scale yeah i think this kind of approach is mainly useful at that larger scale national perhaps even route based analysis not necessarily saying you know this is the absolute truth at an individual location because you've got all of those different limitations in there but as a as a way of finding out at least something you know where there is a complete absence of data um this seems like possibly the the best way forward um do you think that's a reasonable summary yeah, yeah, I think that's that's definitely what we were aiming for with this project. We were never looking for high resolution, sort of really localized data. It's it's always going to be quite generalized. Yeah, I mean, I'm aware of other AI RAP projects that are looking at that kind of solution that involve on the ground surveys, you know, getting information from other sensors, and that will give you something that's much more accurate. But you know, the advantage of the the approach that you liked here, looked at here, is that it is you know very low cost and provides information over a very large area. So, yeah, I mean, I suppose it'd be great to think that we just unlocked this treasure trove of data that makes everyone's life so much easier. But um, you know, I'm sure you came across some frustrations as you were um, coming out the work. Yeah, there's always more that we wish that we could do. Um, so, for example, we're, we're going to have to wait a while to get um, our speed data by time of day, for example. So um, Earth observation imagery is taken um, at the best time of day to take imagery, which tends to be sort of mid-morning, 10.30. Um, and then the, the satellite follows the sun around the Earth. Um, which means our speed data is always going to be from the same point of time during the day, um, whereas we'd really like to get speed profiles for, for different times of day. Um, now our partners at Maxar have just launched a constellation of satellites that should allow us to do this at least six different time periods throughout the day in the future. Um, but for now, we're, we're quite restricted on that. Um, there's also um, limitations on the, the ground level imagery, so we didn't quite have as much coverage of, of crowdsourced um, dash cam footage as we'd have liked, um, which means that sort of some of the safety performance indicators were a little bit more limited than we'd hoped. So, I mean, I guess I should ask, you know, what do you think might come next? Have you got any other countries lined up? Any ambitions to do this everywhere over the world? Yeah, so we really want to validate as as far and wide as we can. Um, so I think at the moment we've covered about 10 different countries and Ultimately, we'd like to know that this is globally applicable, so we want to keep testing it. Um, and we also want to expand the list of things that we can get. So, for example, I said we were trying to detect motorcyclists and get a, a flow model for them, potentially even pedestrians from, from the high resolution imagery um, and sort of the, the road mask stuff, trying to get road width and road surface quality and delineation. Um, yeah, there's, there's lots of ambitions and, and hopefully you'll see a lot more in the, in the coming months and years. Brilliant. Okay. So what I'm really looking forward to then is, you know, the second version of this podcast. So, you know, give it another nine, 12 months time, and then we'll be back again and then discussing what else you found out. Certainly looking forward to it. That's brilliant. Well, I think that brings us to the close of this episode of Think Agility. Uh, many thanks to Craig for his time with us today. And hopefully you found today's conversation interesting and simulating. But 
There's more content available for you in the series. And indeed, there's a second series in the pipeline. So please make sure that you subscribe whenever you get wherever you get your podcast from. And we'd really appreciate it if you give us a review. So until we're back, stay safe and see you soon.